Support for WERU comes from the Abbey Museum, Maine's first Smithsonian affiliate, founded in 1928 at Sir de Mon Spring in Acadia National Park, and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. Just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. <clears throat> I'm your host Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. <clears throat> Today, we have a couple very special guests. Uh, one is the, uh, the new dean of the Maine Law School, uh, Danielle Conway, and the other is the uh, director of admissions from the Maine Law School, Carrie Wolsheson. I think I got that right. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, first of all, what I like to do is I always like to uh, inform the listening audience about some the backgrounds of my guests. So I've done a little research, and uh, here's some background information on uh, Daniel, Dean Daniel Conway. Um, <clears throat> on July 1st, 2015, Daniel Conway became Dean of the University of Maine School of Law. Dean Conway has earned a reputation as a leading expert in public procurement law, entrepreneurship, and as an advocate for minorities and indigenous peoples. She teaches in the areas of intellectual property law, licensing intellectual property, international in intellectual property law, internet law and policy, and government contract law. Now, she's also won some awards, right? <laughs> just a few. <laughs> a couple. <laughs> um, and I had, I just wanted to uh, cite a few of those. And uh, she was named uh, Outstanding Professor of the Year in 2003 and awarded the University of Hawaii's Regents Medal of Excellence in Teaching in 2004. Professor Conway completed a 2006-2007 Fulbright Senior Scholar uh, post in Australia. In academic year 2007-2008, Professor Conway held a visiting E.K. Uh, Gubin? Gubin, Professor correct. of Government Contract Law Chair at the George Washington uh, University Law School. Um, she was selected as the 2008 Godfrey Visiting Scholar at the University of Maine School of Law. <clears throat> and in 2008, Professor Conway was selected to hold a chair in law position at La Trobe University Faculty in Law and Management in Melbourne, Australia. So uh, you've done some uh, work around the world, uh, global work. So next we have uh, Caroline Wilshison. And Caroline has been an associate with Chester and Vestal since August of 2008. Uh, her practice was child-centered, representing adolescents in juvenile court, providing services at a guardian ad litem in both parental rights actions and protective custody matters, 
and representing parents in parental rights <coughs> actions where care of a child is in dispute. Additionally, Carrie is uh, a rostered mediator for the courts in domestic relation matters. Um, I think I read somewhere that you're also uh, a JAG project coordinator. And JAG stands for? Justice Action Group. It's the state's Access to Justice Commission. Uh-huh. And then from there you <coughs> were, was offered the position of, uh, 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 what is it, admissions, director of admissions at law school, right? That's correct. I'm a 2007 alum of Maine Law. Yeah. And okay. she never lets us forget <laughs> it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. So what we're going to do now is uh, Danielle, uh, Dean Conway, <laughs> Uh, I'm going to have you just say a little bit about what you'd like the audience to know about yourself. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show, Donna. This is a true honor to be here to talk on Wabanaki Windows. And the thing I'd love for the listening audience to know is that of those awards that you read, the most important, or let's say the second most important, is the time that I spent in indigenous communities around the world learning about aboriginals, learning about Torres Strait Islanders, learning about the Maori and Aotearoa, and learning about what it means to to work with indigenous peoples who are the first peoples. And so that leads me to say thank you for welcoming me in first people's territory. And thank you for opening up this space, a non-Native, to talk about some of these issues. The most important thing that I'd love for your listeners to know is I am my mother's daughter, and that's the most important thing to me. Great. Thank you for coming. We really, really appreciate you to be here. You're actually here in the station. So you made that trip from Portland. I did. <laughs> For some reason, people find that a longer trip from Portland to Bangor North as <laughs> the opposite direction. But anyway, thank you for doing that. Yeah, uh, Caroline? I am very honored to be here today. Um, one of the things about uh, Maine law that, that had me go there as a student and graduate in 2007 is that it was a place that was nurturing leaders within the state, and it was a place where social justice and uh, raising up issues that are of importance to the state uh, were held very close and were honored. And uh, wanted to bring that message here today and encourage encourage the listeners to be a part of that dialogue. Um, Danielle, you spent the past, uh, what, 14 years mm-hmm. in Hawaii? I did. I did. It was eye-opening. So what? tell us about <laughs> that experience. It was eye-opening. Uh, I had no idea going to Hawaii how intertwined my relationship would be with indigenous peoples. I couldn't even say that word <laughs> 18 years ago. <laughs> and going to Hawaii was not kismet. It was not a happenstance. Going to Hawaii was definitely preordained. It was destiny. And spending the time in Hawaii immediately being uh, courted by indigenous peoples was the best thing that ever happened to me. It opened my eyes to not only who I am as an African-American woman, 
but what my role, responsibility, and, and the road that I traveled, what that meant to people I would be working with at some points representing and bringing all of myself to that representation and bringing all of my capacity to empathize to to those relationships. And so when I got to Hawaii and I learned of the other, the Native Hawaiian, you know, the other in society, it was the first time I had to deal with my own ignorance, my own lack of capacity, and my road to re-education. And so that's what it was for me. It was a re-education. It was looking outward instead of looking inward. It was learning a new language in many respects. It was learning a new origin story. It was seeing beyond what I had been told for most of my life. Now, you spent some time in New Zealand as well, right? I did. I did, did that prepare you in any way for your Hawaiian experience? So I was fortunate to be in Aotearoa after being in Hawaii. After, okay. So the be- so vice versa, I guess, exactly. is the question. Exactly. I look at Hawaii as a gateway in my experience with indigeneity. Hawaii was my training ground. And so dealing with Native Hawaiian kapuna, as we call them, I think Native peoples call, call the, uh, the informed uh, governors, the elders, we call them in Hawaii kapuna. So dealing with those kapuna and learning what it meant to be part of that community, even as an outsider, even as a non-Native Hawaiian, was an important experience for me. And so those individuals took their time and their effort and their energy to actually teach me so many things about the community that I was working with. So I'm curious about New Zealand, though. Mm, I I see you keep going back there. (laughs) I do. do. It's a beautiful place. It's an absolutely stunning place. So so New Zealand, and and I'll I'll refer to it as Aotearoa because that's how I I was trained to to talk about New Zealand. It it was a phenomenal experience. I met with uh, Maori elders in that community who helped me with my Fulbright research. And specifically what I was what I was studying was how to move away from investments in real property to investments in uh, intangible property, how to bring more capacity and more uh, assets back into the Maori, the Aboriginal, the Torres Strait Islander uh, chest, how to bring more assets back to that chest by looking at what indigenous intangible resources were in the community. And that would help bring back language and bring back respect for these first peoples and to bring back investment into these communities. And so what I studied and what I learned was how to actually bring resources coming from indigenous peoples back into their communities 
by using intangible assets to leverage this resource development. And so examples of this would be using uh, traditional healing techniques, traditional sports and commoditizing them so that monies and things of value would flow back into indigenous communities in exchange for in use of intangible assets by non-natives. And I think it was a really important exercise because property, property as Westerners think about it, land and natural resources are integral to indigenous communities. They're the lifeblood. And so I tried to shift away from the actual land and property issues and try to shift the non-Indigenous peoples away from always attempting to consume the land, the real property, and to look at how to actually uh, leverage intangible assets so that they could be used by non-Natives for the benefit of Natives. Interesting. That's sort of like the opposite of what's happening here in Maine. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's the opposite. It, it really is. I mean, yeah. it's a mindset, right? Yeah. So if you recognize the existence of First Peoples, then you have to recognize their the primacy of their interest in land. Hmm. You, you can't ignore that. And so a lot of the work I tried to do was to say, how can some of the byproduct of First Peoples be used to to bring in non-Indigenous and non-Native peoples to share in the wealth of Indigenous culture? And that is to properly use intangible Hmm. Indigenous To, To share and basically not to take everything. Exactly. Hmm. That's a unique concept. <laughs> We're still uh, learning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, Caroline, about you, um, what really intrigues me about your your history is uh, your uh, your time in in New York as a performing artist. Tell yeah. me about that one. <laughs> I spent about twelve years in New York City uh, doing working in the musical theater. I was a singer actress. Uh, and eventually got interested in mediation work, um, and that made me got me fascinated with the rule of law. Believe it or not, I studied mediation at Columbia Law School and uh, uh, started coaching mediation students. and And they were they were all the law students, and they were saying, "You need to go to law school." So, uh, and I started uh, when I was mediating. I started getting fascinated with the rule of law and and what you can do with a law degree and the power that you can have. I was I was using my artistic skills working with free arts for abused children in the city, and I saw so many social justice issues that were breaking my heart. And uh, as an actress, I didn't have a lot of power to do much about it except be there in the trenches at some of the shelters working with these children and, and families. Uh, and I started seeing what I could do with a law degree, and that got me captivated with going to law school and actually getting some power to make a difference. Uh, and and I ended up in Maine, the mother of 
twins and went to law school when they were two years old, and I was 42. Wow. And it was, it was an extraordinary experience, and I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> and the beautiful thing about this, Donna, is, is these are not unconnected experiences. Uh, I've learned through my education, both formal and with Native peoples, that everything happens for a reason. And you're in a particular space at a particular time because you're supposed to be right there. And I love that we're sitting around this table today talking with one another because we're supposed to be here together from our different paths crossing over right now. And one of the things that I love about Carrie's background is her interest in mediation, juvenile justice, and bringing young people into the conversation because that's what I learned also on my path. The way that we start to deal with a lot of these issues is bringing young people into the conversation and making them part of the solution. And that's why Carrie went to Maine Law and graduated and now is the director of admissions because she wants to get at solutions. And that's why I came here to the University of Maine School of Law as the dean because it's time to seek solutions to a lot of the issues we're and dealing with. And to empower with. people to nurture their voices. I think that's a critical thing that mm-hmm. the law school can do is to support in whatever way, whether it's uh, actually training them as lawyers or creating a place for a dialogue on important issues, to to give a venue for that very important those very important discussions uh, to help solve some of these deep problems. And I was so enjoying your conversations <laughs> about your experiences because she's brand new to us and, and I have not been able to hear all these great experiences <laughs> that will feed our law school and, and I, the whole main community, I believe. Yeah, and I, I have to admit that I don't really know that much about the main law school, mm-hmm. uh, but I, in my experience as a legislator... Um, I didn't see Maine Law School reaching out into communities statewide. They might have done well, a few little things in Portland. I don't know. But I think this is a really uh, new concept to be looking at the, the communities throughout the state um, and particularly uh, Native, Native mm-hmm. communities. And what I tell people is, you know, no one's wrong in their in their view or observation because if that's the perception, even if it's not completely true, if that's the perception, then we at Maine Law have some work to do. <laughs> and so we have to actually rewrite that narrative and we have to re-energize ourselves to be part of the community. And I love the visual of reaching out because that is, by definition, what I know the University of Maine School of Law was established to do, was to reach out. And so wherever we have gone on this path where we have maybe retracted that a bit or, or, or pulled back, we are in a position now to actually take back up that obligation and that effort. And be a deep resource to the community. The, the, the legal minds at the law school are extraordinary, and they are caring, mm-hmm. powerful people mm-hmm. with a lot to give and a lot to share. And they're ready, and they're, and they're willing. And there's a lot of need out there, I'll tell you that right now. Oh, is you there? You know that. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, so my, I guess my question is, 
in in coming to the law school mm-hmm. um and you must have some sort of ideas mm-hmm. or projects or programs that you're sort of thinking about well you know the, excellent question donna and in fact i do yeah <laughs> why didn't i know that <laughs> and i was actually fortunate enough and and the university of maine school of law was fortunate to for the first time present our initiatives to the board of trustees yesterday so you are actually having me on your show just one day after that inaugural presentation so you're the first to hear it (laughs) great so the initiatives that we are working on to in fact do the kind of outreach we've just been talking about are a a pipeline partnership initiative, and, and I'd like to actually extend this pipeline partnership idea into Native communities. We are looking at providing an opportunity to open up the doors at the University of Maine School of Law to high schoolers, to undergraduates, particularly from New Mainer communities, from traditionally underrepresented communities, and from communities that come from low-income threshold, as well to indigenous communities, and saying, here is a place, as Carrie said, where we not only want you to bring your voice, we're going to help cultivate that voice, and we are going to provide opportunities for learning about strategy and tactics and techniques that would benefit your community as you represent your own interests. I mean, that's the definition of lawyers, you know. That's what we do. We are we are servants and we are guides. And we're also warriors at times. And so this is what we want to do for young people through this pipeline partnership initiative is to help build the skill set to do those very things. So that's initiative number one. Okay, you want to hear the other two? I do. Or you want to follow up on that? I want to follow up okay. on, the, on the pipeline. <laughs> yes. So how mm-hmm. have you thought about how that's actually going to work? We actually have. So, uh, And Carrie can jump in because she was part of the planning of uh, two grants that we have written to underwrite this this experience for undergraduates and graduate and uh, high school students. So we've written two grants, and those grants are meant to support a summer immersion program. So we want to bring young people into the law school for five weeks. We want to house them, and we want to expose them to educational and leadership experiences meant to show them the power of the rule of law and what learning about the law and becoming lawyers means to representing your community and the issues that impact your community. That's awesome. I like that. And I would say the power and the responsibility of the rule of law Mm -hmm. on a lot of levels. I mean, we're not... Our perception is not that every young person that goes through the program is going to end up going to the law school, but they will understand their place in the community and the value of being educated around cultivating their voice Mm -hmm. and around the the importance of the rule of law um, in society and how that makes society work. Mm -hmm. Because the rule of law is important not just to lawyers. But to those of us who live in a community, to a citizen, or to a first people's community, what 
I love the word obligation and responsibility you have to your community to stand up when things are not right, to seek uh, coherence and to seek uh, responses by our legislators and our lawmakers for the decisions that they're making to understand what one has to do as part of a civilized community, what one has to do to support that community. So even if you don't, as you say, Carrie, come to law school, you should still be empowered to do those things for the betterment of the community. And and it's not just uh, Native and non-Native communities. We have to learn how to work with one another yeah. Um, just for the listening audience, <laughs> I need to just say who my guests are again. Right. We're getting excited, uh, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I have uh, Daniel uh, Conway, who's the, uh, the the new dean of the Maine School of Law. And I have uh, Christine. No, Caroline. Caroline, sorry. Caroline. What's your last name, Caroline? Will Susan. <laughs> <laughs> Caroline Will Susan. You did it. I did it. Okay. <laughs> Who is the uh the uh admissions director that's at correct. the at the law school? So, okay. Yeah. So so that's the importance of this immersion program. So Carrie's absolutely right. We don't want people to think that all we are interested in is creating a pipeline of lawyers. Really what we're trying to do is create a pipeline of individuals who are responsible and obligated as citizens and to be engaged civically and to take up the call of that so that we can empower communities to represent themselves. So it's a leadership sort of training. Yeah, I think so. And and the idea of having um, various, you know, having it be diverse of, of life experience and things like that, it feeds the other students. They learn most from mm-hmm. having other people mm-hmm. engage with them from different uh, walks of life. So that's a piece of it as well. Yeah, we always talk about in in modern uh, conversations, what does it mean to actually seek diversity? What does it really mean? And a lot of it means to to demonstrate to those who've never had to walk that walk, telling them the stories of that path of a minority or a first peoples or a woman and to be able to inculcate in that person the importance of empathy for this path and and why it's important to know someone else's story. Empathy and respect. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And stories, of course, we talked about earlier, uh, and those are hugely uh, important. Uh, so, okay. So there are two more initiatives. Two more. All right. Let's hear the next one. <laughs> so the two other two initiatives are an enrollment to employment initiative. And this is specifically for those students who come to law school. And what we want to do with those students is we want to help them identify where they would best sit as a a practitioner upon graduation and how to actually make that happen. And it's using the internship, externship model, but it's meant to really, upon post-graduation, assist these law graduates by identifying positions for them uh, to actually take up 
as lawyers in a community or as a principal in a non-governmental organization or a nonprofit organization, but it's meant to help a student identify early on what his or her network will be, where he or she would like to go and practice or build another opportunity outside of practice and connect that student with a potential employer that fits his or her path so that the student is shepherded through an experience during law school that he or she can depend upon uh, after graduation. And what we'd like to do with this program is actually extend it so that students don't have this fear of going up north to practice, (laughs) to be part of these communities. And so we'd like to identify a mentor, identify a investor in that student long before that student graduates so that upon graduation, that student feels the support network and also has an employment opportunity that is already there, that is already built, and that he or she can actually move right into. And and what year of law school would that start? I was hoping that it would start very early on, and that's the the whole reason why you get the enrollment piece. So, yeah. so you know, I, I appreciate a critic who will say, well, what if the student wants to change his or her mind about what he or she wants to do? And I, I think that is a legitimate concern. But I think at least as one thinks about law school, it's great upon enrollment to know that you have particular opportunities that are open. And could a student jump on another path? Absolutely. But we have to make sure that there's a mentor there. There's a potential employer there on each one of those paths so that the student isn't left out in the cold. Right. Okay. So that's the second initiative. And the third one is is actually meant to be a bit more entrepreneurial. And this is uh, speaking to my other side, that business side. But I look at business as a, an entrepreneurship as a means of economic self-determination. And that's where this third initiative comes And we like comes that from. term. Right? Oh, do we love that term. Yes. <laughs> there is nothing better than economic self-determination because that really feeds everything else. It really does. And so if a student in the third year of law school can have a capstone experience where he or she can can actually engage in building a business, a small business, a startup, or building a non-governmental organization, or actually building a non-profit in that third year, and then launching it. He or she can actually direct his or her path without having necessarily to depend on someone else. That's the economic self-determination. And then upon launching that, if it's successful, and, you know, most small businesses and most uh, initial uh, entity formations, they're not successful. But the actual failure is a success because it, it makes you less afraid the next time you go out and do it. If he or she can get out there and actually succeed, then he or she does not have to worry about relying upon somebody else for that weekly paycheck. He or she can figure that out for him or herself and for the community. 
And so when I think about economic self-determination, I'm also thinking about how that works in indigenous communities. If you can keep the money within the community, if you can keep the opportunities within the community, then the community can underwrite the next generation of entrepreneurs. Yeah, absolutely. Now, has, have any of these three programs uh, existed elsewhere? So in some way, shape, or form, they have. And it's funny that you are probably the first person who's ever asked me that question, particularly about this enrollment to employment. And, you know, a lot of places are actually doing snippets of it now or portions of it now. But let me tell you where I first got the idea. You're going to, maybe you know already, but I got it from the military. Uh, yeah. 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 I, I forgot about that. Yeah, yes. yeah. So, Absolutely. so yeah, I'm a, uh, I'm lieutenant in, colonel. I'm a lieutenant colonel yes. in the Army Reserve, yep. and I'm going to be extending my service to the Maine Army National Guard very shortly. So you're the first to hear that too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in the military, when I was coming up some 20 years ago, it always struck me: why do they keep rotating people through positions? You know, why do they? Why don't they just put someone in a particular spot? and let that person get expert at. Well, as I went along in my career, I figured out why. The reason why the military doesn't do that is because it has to cross-train people so that if somebody is unable to do job X or one of your comrades falls, you can pick up and do that job and get the mission completed. And, And that was not lost on me when I was thinking about the Enrollment to Employment Initiative. And what I want to do with this initiative is actually rotate postgraduates through various experiences so that they become well-rounded legal practitioners or business people so that they know they have the skill set to do it and so that they know that if something needs to be done, they actually have the experience to do it. And so that's where I really got the initial idea for the Enrollment to Employment Initiative. So the military experience kind of pays off a little bit? It really does. It pays Mm -hmm. off in so many ways. But also this leadership component, because as, as a law school, I think we have been bereft a little bit. We we think that if we produce legal practitioners, we've done our job. And I, I'd say that's probably 50% true. But we really need to take up the call of producing leaders as well. Because as you know, and, and you're, you haven't gone to law school, but I'm going to try to get you to go. <laughs> I'm too old for that. No, you heard Carrie. She went back to law 42. school at 42. Again, I'm too old for that. <laughs> But but what we miss oftentimes in law schools is we miss that leadership component. And leaders are going to, lawyers are going to be leaders in the legislature. They're going to be leaders out in the private sector. They're going to be leaders if they are government attorneys and have to, to manage projects or manage people. And so I think we have to begin to take up that call as well in law schools. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people that, uh, the older generation, mm-hmm. you know, they we do have a limited uh, capacity for uh, memory because mm. uh, our our minds don't hold the same amount as they did when they were younger. Mm-hmm. I think, and uh, law school is a lot of memorization. Uh, like the uh, what always scared me about <laughs> law school, <laughs> and I'll tell you, is the the Socratic stuff. 
And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, I couldn't do that. Uh, Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, you don't know what you can't do until you... What you can do is And I've watched you it. for yeah, about exactly right. two hours yeah. now, and I yeah. think you're just putting me on. You're shining me on, as they say. Yeah, right. <laughs> so let's talk about someone who would like to mm -hmm. get into law school. Yeah. What's that process? So uh, law school admissions are driven through uh, LSAC, which is a national organization, and, and applications are all through the Internet now. And so people register with LSAC, they register to take the law school test, which is the LSAT, mm -hmm. and that's given four times a year. It's given in, we just had one in June. There's one in uh, end of September, beginning of October, December, and February. Uh, and you have to have completed your undergraduate degree or, or be close to finishing your undergraduate degree. Uh, and it's you write a personal statement about why you want to go to law school. Uh, you get some letters of recommendation. You have your transcripts uploaded, and you apply. Um, we have, for people that are interested, we have informational sessions and open houses throughout the year. And because we're small, I mean, we're one of the smallest law schools in the country intentionally, so we only have about 80 students or so in each class. And that means that we know each student personally. And when we talk about the enrollment to employment, um, we start from the very beginning getting to know our students and matching them up with other students and alums and professors. And we do that from the beginning that they're interested in law school. And they can start to sort of feel it out. I had a young woman come in uh, yesterday who was interested in the Refugee and Human Rights Clinic. I emailed the professor and said, can you email this young woman? She's very interested in your work. She said, sure. So, we, we, you know, you can feel it out and see if it's right for you. Um, even, even the conversation and, and the thinking about it, I think, takes you further on your path to what, where you should be. And we're happy to be that resource. Yeah, and I've had the, the privilege of traveling the state with Carrie, and we actually come out to the communities, and we do many presentations, and we talk to people about what it means to go to law school. And so we can definitely do that for First Peoples here. We can have sessions directly geared to you, and, and we can think about strategies and how to improve enrollments for your young people. Well, we'll hold you to that. Okay. Um, now, are you aware that there are um, five Native communities in the state? Do you I'm, know where they are? I'm going to say no. So <laughs> <laughs> I know the I know Penobscot. Yep. I know Wabanaki. Well, well no. They're all Passamaquoddy. Yep. Um, give me some more. Huh? I'm not good at this either, okay, but quiz. I love to be taught. Uh -huh. Which is so why I went to law right. school. Exactly. Okay. I love to learn. Yeah. We are your students. Okay. So there's, <laughs> there's Penobscot. Okay. It's near, near uh, uh, Bangor, 13 okay. miles north of Bangor. And then there's the uh, Holton Band of Maliseets. Mm. So they're in Holton. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Micmac uh, uh, community there in Prescott. Mm -hmm. And then there's the two Passamaquoddy communities. Uh, one is uh, in... In Eastport, mm -hmm. and one is in uh, Pleasant Point. So there are five, and they're they're kind of like spread out a bit. So it'll probably take take you a couple of days to mm -hmm. uh, visit. If you're going to do it in one trip, it would I think it take you about two days to go around. Mm -hmm. But well, we would love 
any entree into the community, if nothing else, to learn, but also to do the kind of outreach and real outreach coming to the First Peoples community, not the First Peoples coming to us. <laughs> now, there's uh, uh, distance learning. You guys, uh, you do anything with that? So we are getting started, and you you know this, um, President Glenn Cummings is coming from the University of Maine, Augusta, and he's going to be leading the University of Southern Maine. And distance learning is one of his initiatives. And so I mentioned the Board of Trustees meeting yesterday and my being able to present at that, and that was on the table. How do we make distance learning possible in the law school curriculum? It can be done. The American Bar Association, our accrediting association, has allowed distance learning. And so there are a handful of law schools that are actually trying it out. So we definitely have their their uh, experiences to build upon. So I think with the addition of President Glenn Cummings, with our willingness to do distance learning, and what we already do is we have flex uh, we have a flex attendance, and Carrie can talk a little bit about that, so that someone who cannot commit the traditional time to the in-residence three-year experience of a law school, we, we try to, to meet them where they are to give them flexibility in the program, and distance learning is going to be key to that in the future. Yeah, so the first year of law school is the most intense because law school is different from a lot of graduate programs in that it's retraining, it's teaching you how to think like a lawyer, it's teaching you a new language. So the first year tends to be fairly intense, and then after that it gets much more flexible. Um, You can even do it two days a week, or or, uh, there are even um, externship programs that you can be entirely off campus for for a whole semester and get your credits. Um, working in a government agency or, or doing some sort of work like that. Um, but the flex time program is is that you have to take a minimum of two classes in the for the first year of law school to get – these are just foundational courses that nothing else will make sense if you don't take those, which is legal research and writing and civil procedure. And then uh, – and so you kind of build your time out and you can do some summer classes in order to, to get through. Mm-hmm. So that's what we have right now. Well, you know, I think with a – the distance learning, if when that starts, mm-hmm. I think you're going to get a lot more uh, you think so? interest, I yeah. do, because, you know, Maine's such a rural state. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we also want to experiment with bringing the courses out to communities because it wouldn't it be interesting for a faculty member who is doing federal Indian law to actually come and spend a semester on... That might do it. You know? <laughs> What I, you know, I would jump at that, and the reason yeah. I jump at that is because I had that Fulbright experience in Australia and in Aotearoa. It was it was amazing, and and what you learn by immersion is so much more powerful than what you can learn sitting in an office in downtown Portland. Mm. Yeah. One of the things we try and teach people about, too, is that a lot of people think that going to law school means you're going to be a lawyer in a practice. Mm-hmm. And and you know from your experience in the legislature that's simply not the case, that that is one way of using a law degree. But mm-hmm. a law degree is, is as I said, a, a new way. It's teaching you a new way of thinking and understanding the kind of the fabric of our society. And that can be used in business. That can be used in government work. That can be used in so many ways um, other than mm-hmm. just practicing law in the traditional sense of the word. And because uh, we are the only law school in Maine, we tend to attract that uh, 
variety of folks going in for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you look at just the careers around this table, yourself included, even though you haven't gone to our law school yet, (laughs) (laughs) you can see the diversity of a law degree. A law degree, as Carrie says, does not limit you to practicing law in big law, law firm. Uh, one of the I mentioned that the the most important thing to me is that I'm my mother's daughter, and the reason that's important to me is because I saw this woman who dedicated her life to her daughter, and part of that dedication was to actually go back to law school. She was forty two as well, and at forty six she graduated and couldn't get a job because she was a black woman who was old, <laughs> old in that time, hmm. right? So she opened up her own solo practice. And again, I'm thinking Northern Maine. This is perfect. She opened up her solo practice in the basement of our house. And she practiced law out of the basement in our house. And she got me through undergraduate school. She got me through law school. She got me through my initial months as a military uh, officer and officer candidate school. My mother did that with a practice in her basement. And she became after after that, she, she ran for a judgeship in Philadelphia. The municipal court judges are elected. And she won. And so my mother rose from Part-time law student, single parent, practicing law in her basement to a municipal court judge. Wow. Amazing. That's what we can do here in Maine. Mm. Now, there's another aspect to this, Mm -hmm. and it's the bottom line. Yes. So how are people going to afford to do this? Great question. You're full of great questions. (laughs) Well, first, let me say this. And I've had the the privilege and opportunity to teach law around the nation. And I don't say this lightly. We are the cheapest, best value game in town, let me tell you. That's number one. Number two, we are not flush with cash, but we properly and with a keen eye uh, provide scholarships particularly to promote this diversity that we find so uh, important and vital to our existence as the only in public law school. That's number two. And number three, as the new dean of the law school, it is my job. It is my job to get out there and find money through philanthropy, through grants, through uh, partnerships with organizations to support the efforts of prospective law students to come to law school. So with these th- three things working together, it is not a, a, a unimaginable proposition. We have an in-state tuition of $22,000. That is an amazing number, considering that uh, one year at the average law school is about sixty thousand oh, dollars. Yeah. So we and we have opportunities to underwrite even that twenty-two thousand dollars, and that's what we're going to seek to do. Yeah. Um, 
I've been asked again to reintroduce <laughs> my guests. People must be just starting to tune in or whatever. Uh, I have uh, Dean Daniel uh, Conway, who's the uh, dean at the uh, School of Law uh, in Maine. Just took office uh, July 1st. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to get this right this time. <laughs> do you want to try or do you want me to do it? <laughs> no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... I just run these... I think there it is. What is it? Karen? Okay, wait a minute. I'll get Don't it. tell you. Don't tell you. I got it. I okay. got it. Caroline. Caroline. <laughs> Caroline. <laughs> You're going to kill me, Caroline. No, I'm not. <laughs> Caroline Wool. See, I got it right before. You uh, did. Wool Chisholm, uh, Director of Admissions at the Maine School of Law. So these are my two guests. Okay, so where were we? So we were talking about money. And uh, I would love to think about how to raise uh, money, particularly for indigenous advocacy programming at the law school. I would love to be able to use my network to bring uh, indigenous scholars to Maine to teach for a semester or a year at the law school. We have the opportunity to do that kind of fundraising, especially if we produce programming, as we spoke about before, maybe an international symposium on indigeneity. Uh, So if we can do this kind of programming, we can actually begin to attract some philanthropic dollars to, to the community. Because my experiences teach me that the way forward for indigenous communities is capacity building and building capacity by generating a pipeline again of future lawyers and lawyers from first people's communities these are going to be the lawyers who are most dedicated who are going to be the most committed to these communities and so getting them into the pipeline and exposing them to the kind of advocacy that's necessary to link them to international indigenous groups and strategies is key it's it's the future and and I would just add that having those voices in the classroom of, of, of Native American voices in the classroom is critical because we're mindful that we are training the new leaders of Maine. We always have about 70% folks from Maine. They end up being the chief justice, the attorney general. They need to hear those voices and understand those voices while they're learning the law. They need to hear that then so that they are better at their jobs when they get out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. They need, to, they need to learn about the community that is me. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I, uh, this is a very new uh, perspective on law, mm-hmm. the law school. And, you know, when I think about going to law school, I just think about, you know, just learning the law and getting a job. Right. But... Uh, yeah, yeah, there's more to it than that. And so I, much more to it. And I think uh, you've done really, really well in explaining that. Now, the hard part mm-hmm. is going to actually be getting out there and implementing some of this stuff. True. Uh, and, and it's a clean slate here. Yeah, and there, that's, that's actually a godsend. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. And sometimes it's, it's better to do it. To yeah. Do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I think we have a great opportunity ahead of us, and part of you extending this invitation to us to come here is is a great start. It's to, to begin to build those partnerships 
in these communities. And I want you to know that I understand who the traditional owners of the land are. And so I I pay homage to them, and that is the perspective from which I come. Well, that's that's new. (laughs) 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 That's good to hear. (laughs) So, um, if uh, if you were if you were to entice Mm -hmm. students Mm -hmm. to come to the law, what would you? How would you get them there? What would be your... So, first thing, I have a great director of admissions. I don't know if you've met her, but her name is Caroline (laughs) Wilshusen. Thank you for that. (laughs) Nicely done. And uh, she is is on the front line, so I'll let her talk about some of the things that she does. Well, I, I think my goal is, and it comes out of my, my love of, of youth and adolescence and, and uh, helping people to fulfill their voice and, and become the best that they can be. And that, you know, I feel that my job is to go out and meet people who are smart and interested and, and seeking to find their voice and talk with them and help them figure out if this is where they want to be or not. Uh, know that it is, uh, it is one possibility and that we are unique in that we are small and the the other woman in my office is Heidi Gage and she is an amazing uh she's the uh she's awesome. admissions <laughs> specialist and we together work to to nurture individual students and figure out where they need to be and if mm-hmm. this is the choice we support them we get them in touch with whomever they need to be in touch with to to begin mm-hmm. to build this pathway through and that's we both i Heidi and I both started last year so we're fairly new to this ourselves and it's personal it mm-hmm. is personal there and so the, you know that's that's uh, that's how we roll there that's is how Heidi we and roll, I say exactly and you know coming into this law school as the the newest member the one thing that i can communicate that can resonate to young people is that they have fierce and loyal support from Maine Law. And I witnessed that day in and day out as I watched the staff and the faculty go about their work. There is not one person in the building, from the dean down to Mark, who is our maintenance engineer, who is not in it for the students. It is amazing to watch every single person go about the day and I would say there's there's an extraordinary program that I don't know that you're aware of, but we have the Cumberland Legal Aid Clinic at the law school, and it's a clinical program. It's unique to Maine in that we have this very liberal practice rule. So a third-year law student, and I'm a product of the clinic, and uh, a third-year law student actually practices law under the supervision of an attorney. And and I mean practices law. So I worked, walked into the clinic after my second year of law school, and they handed me a law court brief and said, here, write the reply. And I, my eyes were rolling. I'm like, I can't do that. I'm still a law student. They're like, yes, you can. <laughs> and every year they have someone arguing in front of the law court. They have, you are, I was supervising uh, in juvenile court on Thursday because they were short-staffed. And the students did everything. I just stood and I whispered in their ear a few times. And the experience, they, every uh, once a week, uh, the students are up in Lewiston District Court um, representing plaintiffs in domestic violence cases. 
and they meet the clients in the morning. They chat with them. They try and get an agreement. If they don't get an agreement, they go to trial that afternoon, and that's the students doing that. And the professors at the clinic watch their students the whole way through and and help them find a job at the back end. They uh, really do. And I I think it's important to to identify our director of that clinic. Uh, Her name is Deirdre Smith. She's director of the clinic but also a professor. And uh, the four clinics that we have running that Carrie's talking about are our general practice clinic, our juvenile justice clinic, our prisoner assistance clinic, and our refugee and human rights clinic. And this is the training ground. This is where the student learns his or her craft. And decides whether or not they want to be a litigator. (laughs) Some of them go in and find out they do, and others go, this is not for me because it's hard work. But the other thing that 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 clinic teaches, but the entire program of legal education teaches at Maine Law, it's premised on ethical behavior, ethics. And so we are modeling as well as teaching our young people how to act with valor and honor and dignity and with ethical, ethical compass. That's what we teach. And and that's a that's a critical piece of what we teach because it was that idea of the responsibility of that power and mm-hmm. understanding the rule of law going back to the pipeline program. Mm-hmm. Right. Now we've got a couple of minutes left. Mm-hmm. So what I would like is if there's something you want to get in to say before you leave the air. Uh, this is your chance, probably about a minute or so. Uh, start with you, Caroline. Um, I'm sure Dean Conway has a lot more to say than I do, but I, I would just <laughs> say that as, as we are available, and I am willing to talk to anybody if they are at all interested in in understanding more about the rule of law or about law school or about the work that I did with at-risk adolescents, I'm happy to talk with them because I, that's my goal is to nurture people in their interests. And so I am absolutely a resource. And how do they contact you? They can find me at uh, mainlaw.edu mm-hmm. and at the admissions page, and uh, there is uh, uh, an email address there. And I actually tweet. Tweet. Yes. So okay. you can reach me at you, Maine Law Dean. <laughs> that's your. Uh, that's uh, my handle. That's your handle. Okay. <laughs> but I do want to end thanking the traditional owners of the land for this opportunity to come and speak on this program. As a non indigenous person, I feel great honor in your invitation. Okay. I second that. All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Abenaki Windows. The music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. Our engineer was Amy Brown. I want to thank my special guests, uh, da- Dean Daniel Conway of the Maine School of Law and Carrie Wolcherson, Director of Admissions for the Maine School of Law, for being here today. And tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. Support for WERU comes from our generous listeners.